This is a classic because it is a simple story told in an atmospheric setting, slowly uncovering important and relevant conversations. This is a classic because asking questions about authenticity and belonging are always relevant. This is a classic because it tugs on your heartstrings while giving you a perspective on history and progress. This is a history. This is a Hello and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Kalina Ko, she, her pronouns, a curator for Expand the Canon. And I'm Mary Candler, she, her, founder of Hedgepig Ensemble Theater and a curator for Expand the Canon. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. Today, we are getting into Josefina Negley's The Singing Valley from the Expand the Canon list, available at expandthecanon.com. If you were going to go to that site, and you absolutely should, you would find this pitch. If you're looking for an atmospheric romance where the truest love story is one with home and community, consider this heartfelt struggle between new and old. After 30 years in the big city, Antonio Lozano returns with his adult children to his village in Mexico focused on innovating farming practices in his rural home. The cosmopolitan meets the pastoral, conflict abounds, and the entire valley must decide whether to adapt to a modernized future or to stick with traditions steeped in history. Addressing globalization, romanticized change, and our relationship to the environment, this sensitive story asks us what it truly means to return home. So, Mary, tell us what this play is actually about. Okay, so what's going on here? So um, it's a deceptively simple story, I think, to be fair. Um, It is inspired by a true story. At least that is what the author's foreword suggests. And we are here in Mexico in the Santa Catarina Valley. It is a valley that when we uh, first meet it is kind of dry, arid. It's got a whole lot of goats. So the play opens at Don Antonio's house, which has been empty for many years. And we've got all the who's who of this small village present. Notably, that is Doña Becca, our self-assured matriarch, an incredible, incredible role for an older woman. And Don Rufino, the kind of like bullyish mayor who rules over this valley with his monopoly on all the goats, which is the main industry, and then some other vips of this valley. So that's kind of where we start. <laughs> the vips. Yes. And we are preparing for the arrival of Don Antonio after a 22-year exile. And bonus, Don Antonio is bringing his nearly adult, I think, how old do you think the kids are? I want to say they're somewhere like 18 to 22. They feel like young adult. Exactly. Like maybe college age-ish young adult children who have never been here as well. So what we learn is that Don Antonio has become very rich while he was exiled. And so there's a whole lot of talk about how this return is going to affect the valley. What kind of power dynamics will come into play with him bringing all this money in. And him, you know, he's a kind of a big figure. So what's it going to be like when he comes back? So 
From here, we basically are following two storylines. We've got our, what I'm going to call the Schitt's Creek storyline, which is true in terms of plot, certainly not true in terms of tone. But we've got the two kids, Lupita and Abel, who were kind of these wealthy, privileged city folks who were suddenly a fish out of water in this very small, I won't even say town, I'm going to say village in Mexico. And we watched kind of this journey of their assimilation, lack thereof, finding their own belonging. Sounds like a bit of a shock for them. Yeah, an absolute shock. And it is like, oh, what? Where are we suddenly? This is not New York City. We, we ain't in New York no more. Um, uh, more not on that plot. But the other kind of major plot here is Don Antonio's progressive dream for the valley. And currently, as I mentioned, the valley is kind of a dry, desert-like place. And people are really tied to Don Rufino, that mayor, to earn a living through goat herding. And it's frankly a really tough life. People are not thriving. They are certainly just surviving at this time. And Don Antonio really wants to bring prosperity to the people by helping irrigate the valley and creating an incredible orange grove paradise situation. And his son Abel is going to be a really big part of that dream because he's an engineer that can help make that happen. So Don Antonio's big dream does not make him exactly popular with Don Rufino, who really argues for keeping the status quo. Of course, it's working in his favor. He's got a lot of power to keep things as they are. And some other folks also have some doubt. You know, they're looking at this dry valley and they're like, you're saying orange groves. And it's like, what are you talking about? But with a lot of perseverance, a power plant is built, thanks to Abel, um, to power this irrigation system. And things start to move in, you know, Don Antonio's direction. But again, Don Rufino doesn't want this to happen. So he threatens Don Antonio and really brings us quite close to derailing the project. He even sets fire to that new power plant as a final attempt to stop this change. However, that doesn't really pan out for him. The fire actually kind of brings the village together, rooting for Don Antonio, and ends up getting Don Rufino thrown in prison. So kind of our major obstacle now is, you know, out of the way. Right. Yeah, I love hearing a story where it's like the, the, the villain's plan backfires and, and goes in the entirely opposite direction. Yeah, it backfires in a spectacular way. <laughs> He's really becoming more of a sidelined character as things go on. And, you know, throughout this plot, there are so many amazing conversations just about modernity and progress, tradition, the status quo. And so it's really, you know, it's not just like, we're going to build a plant and here it goes. There are rich conversations inlaid within that as well. Right. Yeah. It sounds like there's also a lot of like complexity with the like power dynamics between Don Rufino and Don Antonio. Absolutely. And a real question of like who authentically belongs here. Is it the guy that's been gone for 22 years, but, you know, grew up here and knows everything? Or is it this new mayor who came into town 10 years ago and is like, yeah, but I've been keeping the place running. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's all very complex and interesting. Meanwhile, we have our kind of slick New Yorkers standing around this dusty valley in their kind of high fashion attire. So this is back to our Schitt's Creek, <laughs> back to our Schitt's Creek storyline. And Lupita, the daughter, seems particularly displeased to be uprooted from her fancy city life to arrive mm, here, a quaint, 
unmodernized Mexican village. I can't imagine what that would be like. Yeah, I mean, what she must have left a whole life behind in New York. Yeah, and her, her dad's just like, we're going, and I don't think he listened a whole lot to their complaints about that. No, it does not sound like she had a say. No. And to be honest, she's like a real pill about this. She's pretty stuck up and quite rude to these local folks who were genuinely excited to have her there. Um, so it's a little tough to swallow how she treats people, especially at the beginning, but, you know, she's also just been totally displaced. So even though she's being a real pill, somehow this young bachelor in the area, Carlos, does seem to be developing a crush on her. So just just note that that's happening too. Meanwhile, her brother, Abel, seems a little bit more interested in the village than Lupita. He's not like 100% in at the beginning, but he's certainly curious. And he's the engineer, right? Yes, he's the engineer. So he's got some kind of interest in like dad's plan and how he can be involved in that. So I think he's got more buy-in. He also seems like he's a little interested in this simpler life and seems to have a bit more of a healthy perspective on his New York City experience than perhaps Lupita does. He begins to find an authenticity in this life here as opposed to hanging out with his pretty vapid group of privileged ding-dongs in New York that we learn a lot about. It seems like their their crew in New York was not maybe, how would we even like- Maybe not the best influence. Exactly, like real posers, real users, what have you. Mm. Um, so Lupita is like, I, I gotta get back to New York. I'm like ready to run away. But Abel is not convinced because he's like, hey, I mean, I think it's kind of cool, this engineering project and creating this orange grove. And at the same time, Abel is even developing a crush on a local girl named Esther. So hmm, more hearts flying through the air. I'd love it. Love a little bit of romance sprinkled in with my politics. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> gotta keep it, gotta keep it light. Um, throughout this, we have a wonderful conversation between Lupita and Abel about kind of high art versus folk art, artifice versus authenticity, about those posers in New York versus the real people that are here. And like, side note, I will tell you that when I first started reading this, as a New York City dweller, I was like a little put off because I was like, not everyone in New York is like a crappy person, you know? <laughs> and this really started to paint everyone as like, New York City, the bad city with bad people. And I was like, hold the phone. But, you know, I worked, I worked through that. I worked through that. And I, I can also understand the point that is being made here. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. There are some good people here, but um, the overall conceit of it and sort of the folks that I guess like Lupita was hanging out with was maybe the the darker side exactly, of New York City. Exactly. The crew she's hanging out with, I also know is in New York, and I also don't have time for. So I get it. <laughs> um, I get it. So a lot of people are really trying to help guide Lupita to see the valley as it truly is and not just discount it. And to also kind of recognize her life in New York for what it was and not pretend that it was something kind of deeper than it was. And over time, Abel is totally won over by the valley, in part because of, like, he he was a big part of saving the power plant from that fire. So it was like he became a hero in the valley, and so he starts to really find his place in belonging. He even asks Esther to marry him. 
Mm, moving forward. <laughs> and this, oh my gosh, this is like really what pushes Lupita over the edge because she's like, forget it. I'm getting out of here with or without you. But that's pretty hard because she doesn't have any money. Her dad has the purse strings and he's certainly not going to foot the bill if, if she runs back off to New York City because frankly, he really wants her to be part of this experience. So she goes to that crew of New Yorkers that we're not so fond of and she reaches out to her fancy friends and is like hey I need help coming back like please help me and they don't respond forever they're basically ghosting on her which is not great and when she finally gets a response months later they basically say you without money are of no use to us yikes they reveal their true colors and this is what I would consider Lupita's rock bottom. Her whole world has sort of shattered around her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, she's standing in this valley and everything she thought she had, like you said, is shattered. Um, and then in this, like, incredibly kind and generous move, the man who has been crushing on her this whole time, Carlos, who is, by the way, a, like, humble candy maker, although, spoiler alert, he's actually got this very, like, ambitious leadership side hiding inside of him, which we will see later. Um, he offers Lupita all of his candy-making savings to help her go to New York because he loves her so much that he wants her just to be happy. It is heartbreaking, <laughs> that moment. That moment kills me. Like a big, a big romantic gesture. I know. And this is honestly the moment that gets through to her. It's kind of what cracks her shell. And the next time we see Lupita, she is actually changed out of her city clothes into the style of the valley. And she really leans into this community for the first time and even cheats at a pinata game to secure Carlos as her husband. So you're going to have to read the play <laughs> to find out how that goes down. It's very cute. Um... But again, it's a really simple story in so many ways, but I don't want to rob it of its complexity for the deep conversations that are happening around belonging and progress and this really atmospheric, beautiful vibe that Josefina Negli writes into it. I, I mean, of course, I highly recommend this play. We put it on our list, but I've read it a few times now, and I find myself surprised that I'm weeping at the end of the third act every time. Yeah, I think the, the like, emotional up and downs for me as I'm reading this play, are, they, they get me every time, every time I read it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it sneaks up on you. It sneaks up on you because it's a very gentle play in many ways. Legacy. So what is it that moves you in this play, Kalina? Yeah, um, you, you know, you touched on it so much in your summary. I think it's this conversation about belonging, really, and how people belong in this valley. And there's so many dimensions about that that Josefina Negli sort of touches in this play from sort of the question between Don Rufino and Don Antonio and who has more of a claim and a stake to the valley. Um, whether it's Rufino, who moved here in the last 15 years and has been running the place and has like a monopoly on the business in this place, or if it's Antonio who grew up here but had to leave for 20 years, you know, does he still belong? Who who belongs more? Um, but then I also think that the children's relationship to the to the valley is also a very interesting conversation to have. Because neither of them grew up there and have now sort of been displaced here and, and have to find their own sort of belonging. And so I think 
for me, what what moves me the most is how how Josefina is able to capture all these different dimensions of what it means to belong and what it means to find a home or to rediscover your home or to make a place your home. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think we'll come back to this when we talk about Josefina Nigli and like who she is as a playwright. And I think it will become very clear what she is working through and writing through as well and how that aligns with this. I'm curious about your opinion on something. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think it's easy to think about this play as like Don Antonio's play where it's like he's doing this thing. But I actually think this is Lupita's play. Mm, Interesting. Like, to me, her arc is so strong between, like, total fish out of water, learning to let go of some pieces of herself, learning to embrace some pieces of herself, and find a new sense of, like, ownership and care. And, like, Don Antonio's plot, you know, like, just in terms of structure, kind of only goes through, like, two-thirds of the play. And then it's, like, the third act is Lupita's act. Mm, yeah, yeah, I definitely see that. I, I think for me, it was, it was about the children. Um, although I, I certainly hear sort of what you're saying about the third act is Lupita's act, and it ends up sort of all being about her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely, I definitely don't necessarily think it's Don Antonio's play, even though he's like the talk of the town right. and sort of the name on everyone's tongue. Um, but I, I think I agree with you and sort of it's really about the children's arc and Lupita's in particular feels the most compelling to mm-hmm. me. Although I think that there's a lot there with Abel about his like engineering feats. And I think sort of the whole conversation about technology and nature and sort of how we can use technology um, is sort of sort of rests on his shoulders in a way. Yeah. It's just a deeply human play. You know, it's about people's relationship to each other and to kind of the earth and the land yeah yeah i, th- I think the whole orange grove and, and water conversation beyond feeling really like i felt it was really resonant when i read it with sort of our current current day you know happenings and farming conversations out in california and whatnot mm-hmm. but I, I think what is so beautiful is also that the way they talk the way josefina Nigli writes about the land it's not just like we have to save the land there's also this really beautiful conversation about what it means to live on the land i think mm-hmm. and the like relationship between the people who exist there and live there and have to farm it and, and work on it or or raise goats or whatnot um and also how they feel about the whole situation right i mean this is an environmental play in many ways as well and an agriculture play i didn't even think about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah a lot gets in there. And you're right. There is something, I think, newly even more resonant. I mean, I when I first saw, read this play, I really just thought this is of this is timeless, you know? Like, we're always having discussions mm. about tradition versus progress and, like, new world versus old world. But it is true that, like, we are now dealing so much with climate change that it adds, like, a new resonance that is not just timeless, but also timely. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm so interested in sort of what you were talking about in terms of tradition versus progress. And I'm curious to like know more about what you think and about how that tradition versus progress plays out in terms of Rufino versus Antonio. I feel like their dynamic really embodies that in a lot of ways. Yeah, I agree. And what's, of course, it's more complex than even just thinking tradition versus progress because Don Rufino, in some ways, did bring progress to this land. You know, he brought this new industry Mm. of um goat herding and that could have been a really positive change for this valley but it seems like however it has played out has become a money hungry 
disempowering situation for the people of the valley. It's doubly complex there because he's not necessarily history. He's like new history, new tradition versus new progress from the man who was originally from here, who stands from probably more of the tradition of the valley. Oh my gosh, that's just like totally wrapping me up in total knots there. Yeah, there's such a question of like, when does history start or like what what is like the original tradition? It's like, how do you even define that? And even um, Doña Becca, who I spoke about earlier, even alludes a few times when she's speaking to Lupita about the day that the Spanish colonists came. You know, she goes way back thinking about, you know, the history even before that. And there's not a whole lot of reference to what came before colonization came. But, you know, it's kind of talking through the reiterations of tradition kind of keeps resetting itself. History keeps resetting itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's really emblematic of the idea, like wherever you start the story, it's just pick a point and drop it. And that's almost where history starts. Yeah. There's also kind of in this idea of like Don Rufino and Don Antonio is kind of, you know, there's two if we were going to reframe them as two progressive people trying to bring different industries to the valley, mm. is then becomes kind of a conversation around like extraction versus empowerment, where it feels like this goat business is about like extracting from the people and like getting money out of the land. Whereas what Don Antonio seems to be trying to create is something that is about empowering the people, giving back to the people, something that will sustain the people. And, like, we don't know where that's going to be in 20 years. Maybe it'll be the same kind of big business that is um, that is sucking from the people at that point, too. We don't know. But right now, we have a vision of empowerment. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And I and I think what's what's really compelling to me about sort of those debates that they have is that I think Don Rufino really doesn't see himself as a, as a villain. He's like, look at the livelihood of these people. It's goats and you want to come in here and like flood the valley and, and completely remake it all. Um, I think that there's something really compelling too about sort of, you know, Don Rufino kind of goes off the deep end at the end when he tries to burn things down. But I think initially <laughs> there's a really compelling argument of like, I'm trying to keep these people alive and give them a livelihood. And maybe it's not ideal, but, you know, they've they've lived this far or th- for this long. That um, I think is a really human argument to make as well. Yeah, I think it makes a role that Josefina Negley does absolutely write him as a villain. You know, I don't think that we can... She, she writes him as a villain, but there's enough in there that an yes. actor could absolutely hold on to a Don Rufino as a good guy and really fighting for the people as well. I think you mentioned something earlier about sort of talking about the like artists of New York that Lupita, the crowd that Lupita runs with, the artists of New mm-hmm. York, um, and comparing that to sort of the different type of artistry and like beauty of the valley that they're in now and sort of that comparison um, and, and the, the contrast between sort of natural beauty and like human-made artist beauty and what is real or what feels like it means more for these characters and how that sort of shifts over the course of the play. Um, I think that's really interesting, especially in sort of Lupita's art and her relationship to 
art and beauty and the valley and wanting to leave or not leave. Yeah, I agree. And there's this, um, there's certainly this conversation about this, like, first of all, <laughs> the way that they describe the art world of New York is hilarious. I oh mean, <laughs> I mean, it is stuff I have felt before, though. Like, sometimes I will go to an art museum and I will go to a modern art part of things and I am not super, I'm fairly ignorant in the modern art world. So I will be like, I don't get it. Like, that is a piece of like that is a line and I don't understand it, you know, in the larger context. But this takes things a lot further. It's like this art was like a robot piece that meant like whistles are the death of humanity or something. And it's like, what? <laughs> it sounds so like, convoluted. I will take your word for exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> so you've got very obscure modern art happening up here in New York. And then it's both weighed against, as you said, like this natural beauty of nature in the world. And also looking back at some of what we might call like folk art now of like some carvings in rocks and why does that not have as much as a place in the high art world as, you know, robots. Um, and that's something I think that is still relevant today too. You know, I, I, I live in Washington, D.C. now. There are a series of free Smithsonian museums, which I love going to. And, yeah. you know, the folk art museum is really trying hard to make a argument that folk art is worthy, right? There are all of these traditions that are incredible with incredible artistry and incredible craft needed. And it gets really overshadowed by the um, ye old European masters, right? Yeah. And the robots of, of modern and art. The robots of modern art, if you will. <laughs> History. So I alluded earlier to how a lot of these conversations happening in the play really relate to Josefina Nigli's life. Tell us more about her, Kalina. Yeah, Josefina is so fascinating. I did a little bit of digging into her life, and, and there's actually a lot of parallels to the Singing Valley, I feel. Um, so she was born in Mexico in, in 1910 to white American parents. And she actually ends up being one of the first writers to really write in English about Mexican topics and, and Mexican folk in a lot of ways. So she was born in 1910, but then three years later, because of the rise of the Mexican Revolution, she's sent away to Monterey, California and San Antonio, Texas. And she sort of spends her life bouncing between those two places in the U.S. She moves back to Mexico very, very briefly when she's 10, but is very quickly sent back away again because of this growing violence and the instability of the Mexican Revolution. Well, I mean, talk about displacement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can really see how she is this person who's caught between, literally caught between two different places and two different homes and two different cultures, which I think feels very, very resonant in terms of trying to figure out where you belong and, and what it means to return to your homeland. She talks a lot about feeling at home in Texas, but always longing to be back in Mexico, which, again, kind of repeats what Lupita feels in The Singing Valley for a long time, sort of this wanting to be back somewhere um, that you're not allowed to go to. She grows up in Texas and California, and then she goes on to study at Incarnate World College in San Antonio. And while she's there... She really, like, is born into her writing era. She places second in the Ladies' Home Journal yeah. short story competition. She receives the Catholic College Poetry Award. <laughs> she is thriving. She is writing. She is being recognized for her writing. Everything's going great. While she's there, she also becomes interested in theater. And she studies theater at San Antonio Little Theater and eventually gets a master's in drama at UNC. 
It's at UNC that she writes The Singing Valley as her master's thesis, um, as well as a couple other historical plays all about Mexico. It's also there, with sort of encouragement from UNC and the Carolina Playmakers, that she really dives into writing about folk life in Mexico, um, which is what she eventually becomes renowned for. And so she's writing all these plays about folk life in Mexico. She writes The Singing Valley. She gets her degree. And then in 1945, when she's 35, so nearly 25 years since she went back for her very brief stint in Mexico, she goes back to Mexico. So then finally, after writing all these plays about Mexico folk life and getting her master's and writing a lot and being recognized for it, she moves back to Mexico in 1945 when she is 35 years old and publishes her first group of plays. Wow. So that's her first time back in Mexico since she was a child? Basically, I think it's her first extended, you know, her first extended stay since she was three, really. Wow. Yeah, that's really, it makes her a very interesting and complex writer, too, in terms of, like, perspective. Definitely, definitely. So she keeps writing there. She's a very prolific writer throughout her lifetime. She writes three novels, 16 plays, and a whole collection of poetry, which is incomprehensible to me. I can barely <laughs> write an article sometimes. Um, and her novel, Step Down Elder Brother in particular, was really, really successful and translated into Spanish, which really helped sort of solidify her in, in the Latin American literary sphere. And eventually, I think they actually turned this one into a movie, which was the start of her Hollywood career, um, which is amazing. And she also became a writer for 20th Century Fox and MGM Studios. So she's writing novels, writing plays. She's maybe the first playwright to screenwriter that I've heard of, um, writing poetry and just writing so many different pieces. Eventually, she leaves Hollywood um, and becomes a teacher at Western Carolina University. And she teaches there for about 20 years from 1956 to 1975 and actually helps found their theater department. But that didn't stop her from continuing to write novels, radio plays, television shows and more throughout those years. Fun fact for y'all out there, she even wrote for The Twilight Zone at some point. Still figuring out which episode it was and really want to watch it I want to know. I need to know that information. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do some research. Stay tuned. Um, Neely died in 1983, and her work unfortunately fell to the wayside after her death. Until about a decade later in the 90s, when sort of in a revitalization of Chicanic literature, and that Chicanics literature movement, she was reevaluated and, and acknowledged for her radical and trailblazing work. She is also recognized for laying the foundation for a lot of Chicana feminists like Gloria Anzaldúa, Ana Castillo, and Sandra Cisneros. So she's had a very, very long legacy and a very rich history. I love that so much. I am also frustrated that every single playwright that we talk about is like, and they were forgotten about for a long time. And then finally someone gave them some due. But we're giving them more due. More due. <laughs> um, wow. I mean, it makes just so much sense why she would write a play like The Singing Valley, right? It comes from so much personal, emotional experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think all of this I, th I think the theme for her life is moving around a lot. And so I think that it makes total sense why she's so interested in sort of history and, and where we come from. 
and what it means to like live in a place and be connected to the earth or to stay in a place long enough to feel connected to the land and the people and the community. If you read and then produce The Singing Valley, you should really also check out the other plays in that anthology. They're all really lovely and beautiful. There's another play that we're in love with called Soldadera that we were like really hemmed and hawed about putting on the list. Um, so there's a there's a rich anthology of plays out there that I think you should check out. Now, here's a recording from a filmed scene from Singing Valley, a performance by Ashley Christine Vega and Miguel Fana. Abel, I don't know how you endure it. All those ghastly people. Thought they were really nice. And the girls are certainly pretty. Don't you understand? Father wants to smother us with this valley. Cut us off from all the important things in the world. All for, for a bunch of goats. I like it. The air is so clear. And those distant mountains, they look close enough to touch them with my hand. At this moment, I could build a bridge to span Stop all the- Stop it! Abel, you are not an engineer. I have a degree to prove it. Anyone can get a degree in engineering, but God gave us great gifts. He gave poetry to me and music to you. To deny those gifts would be sacrilegious. The air shimmers like an opal. And all that cactus scattered about, and those trees that look like bent pencils, I wonder what they are. Who cares? Come and look at it. No, I won't. I can't go and look at it. Are you afraid of this valley, Lupita? Yes, I am. It's already started casting its spell on you. I won't let it cast its spell on me. I won't. Lupita, you're trembling. I'm afraid. Really afraid. If Father has his way, he'll bury us here. And the wonderful world, full of people who speak our language, who love beauty the way we do, they will keep going into their wonderful futures and forget all about us. Or Lapita, all you have to do is open your eyes. There's real beauty here. You find this absurdity beautiful? It's 25 years out of date. This is what's going to happen to us. We will be out of date unless we leave here now, tonight. And leave father? He's counting on us. He's lived his life. This is his world, not ours. Anyway, I promised to build the powerhouse for him. He can get a real engineer to build it for him. You have to admit, you don't know much about powerhouses. Perhaps you're right. You know I'm right. Thank you so much to Ashley Christine Viga and Miguel Fana for a wonderful reading, as well as great thanks to Anisha Kudtarkar for directing, sound design by Stephanie Coriatis, and production stage management by Jessica Fournier. A special thank you to Stephen Beck for his editing prowess on this episode of This is a Classic. Thank you for joining us for our The Singing Valley by Josefina Negley episode of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon theater podcast. Learn more at expandthecanon.com. And if you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, which you should, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And then hit the share button and forward along to a friend, a colleague, your mom, a professor, whoever. Whoever you want. Um, and for information on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram. At Hedgepick Ensemble Theater. Facebook slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org.
You can also support this effort by donating in the link in the comments below. Please, thank you. Again, I'm Talina. And I'm Mary. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.